Tonight, keeping New York City safe, from domestic terrorism to lone wolf extremism, the NYPD's new head of intelligence and counterterrorism joins us to talk about the threats the agency is monitoring right now. Then, he was called the judge of abuse, raising awareness on domestic violence. Now, retired New York State judge speaks out on what the courts should do to protect victims and survivors. Those stories and more as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. After 9-11, the NYPD revamped its intelligence gathering division and created a new counterterrorism unit to monitor threats and avert another terrorist attack. The focus then was on international threats from extremist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. However, since then, the threats facing New York have evolved. Now, there's a growing focus on domestic terrorism and right-wing lone wolf attacks, like the mass shooting in Buffalo last year or the recent attacks on synagogues across the region. Over the summer, the NYPD Commissioner Edward Caban appointed Rebecca Weiner as the NYPD's new Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism, the first woman ever to serve in that role. Weiner is a 17-year veteran of the NYPD and takes over a bureau consisting of analysis, officers, investigators, and tasked with keeping the city safe. And she joins me now to talk about the new job, the current threat environment in New York City, and what led her to a career in law enforcement. Welcome, Deputy Commissioner Weiner. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So first off, for people who might be perhaps a little confused or fuzzy, uh, what exactly is your role in the division that you're overseeing? Uh, so I'm the deputy commissioner, as you said, for intelligence and counterterrorism. I oversee uh, a bureau that was created post 9-11 and grown post 9-11. We had some resources that pre-existed 9-11 and others that we brought to the table after whose job it is to counter terrorism and targeted violence threats, to fight crime, and to protect people, events, and infrastructure throughout the city. So it's to make New York City safe by preventing complex acts of violence, in particular those associated with terrorism. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, there's been a shift from concerns about international terrorism, which I don't want to minimize because I'm sure they're still there, but definitely towards uh, right-wing lone wolf extremists, like, unfortunately, the horrific shooting we saw in Buffalo. And so I'm wondering, how do you begin to address those kind of, uh, yeah, I guess, lone wolf extremists when we're talking about acts that an individual who may have no record decides to just get up one day and commit? So it's it's an excellent question. You know, I've been here for 17 years. 
The threat environment has changed considerably over that time. And some people like to describe it as a shift, which implies moving from one place to another. And actually what we're dealing with is a real diversification of the kinds of threats that we face. We don't have as much of the complex, externally directed plotting that we had in the immediate post 9-11 era from groups like Al-Qaeda, but we still have a robust presence of individuals who are inspired by Al-Qaeda, by ISIS and that ideology. Uh, and most recent example of that here in New York City was on New Year's Eve last year in Times Square, just outside of our quite hardened security perimeter, an attack carried out against some of our officers uh, by somebody who is motivated in part by that kind of ideology. At the same time, over the last few years, we've seen and responded to a pretty concerted increase in what you're just describing mm -hmm. uh, and others describe with various acronyms, but the label we use is racially and ethnically motivated extremism. And that encompasses neo-Nazis, white supremacists. The Buffalo attack is uh, an unfortunate and very apropos reminder of what that threat can look like here. There was an attack recently in Jacksonville, which had some of the, the same kind of mm -hmm. We've also seen the rise in anti-government extremism and the overt targeting for a number of reasons of individuals who are associated with or symbols of government. And we're seeing an increase in conspiracy theory driven violence. We had an attack uh, last spring on our subway system. An individual shot 10 people on, on the subway train and was motivated in part by race-based conspiracy theories. So the threat is broad and it's diverse and it's quite unpredictable. However, the good news is that the machinery that we put into place in the post 9-11 era to deal with it, to mitigate it, which combines a really deep understanding of what's happening on our streets, a real granular knowledge um, with intelligence that we're getting from partners, information from our state, local, international partners, from the private sector, um, open source analysis. So the intelligence analysts that you mentioned earlier, married up with investigators as a team working cases, that is a combination that can help mitigate a threat, whatever the ideology is that's generating it. So it's a machine that we've built in a way, an intelligence machine that can be deployed as the threat environment shifts. Okay, now I also wanna bring up the fact that uh, you're overseeing a division that uh, a few years back, specifically speaking of after 9-11, was criticized for the way that, of the controversial way that it uh, monitored the Muslim community. And I'm wondering, A, what do you think of those criticisms and B, how do you address that with yourself at the helm now? Uh, it, it's it's another important point and an interesting you know history that we as a city have gone through in the post 9-11 era. There are certain strengths that NYPD brings to the counterterrorism fight, that NY brings to the NYPD brings to the crime fighting um, era as well. And in particular, the diversity of our own personnel. 
uh, is extraordinary. We became majority minority back in 2006. We speak dozens of languages natively as a department. Our officers hail from all over the world and reflect the diversity of our city. So tapping into that diversity as a strength and helping us understand what's signal, what's noise, has been a key hallmark of our program forever. Also, the domain knowledge that I just referenced, nobody understands the streets of a city better than the officers who patrol that city. And over the years, post 9-11, the NYPD had to adapt really quickly to a new threat environment that we didn't understand all that well at the time and learned a lot over a pretty short period of time about what a threat looks like here. Um, and that learning process had some bumps along the road. He, the litigation that you just flagged uh, was, I think, an incredibly important process for us to go through as a bureau, as a program, uh, and alongside our law enforcement partners as well, trying to make sure, and we are governed by a consent decree, which is quite complicated and probably not of great interest to many of your viewers, except the lawyers among you, that governs our uh, activity that in this realm where political activity is at, at the root of, of some of the threats that we're investigating. Uh, so this consent decree is an incredibly important part of the work that we do. And as part of the settlement of the uh, lawsuits, we had the appointment of a civilian representative. So somebody from the outside who would come in and look at our cases with a fresh perspective not from the perspective of the police officers who are protecting the city, who are charged with protecting the city, uh, but to make sure that our sense of what was justified and appropriate and necessary for public safety was shared. And that has been an incredibly helpful addition to our team. We also enshrined into policy certain practices that we had been taking voluntarily uh, as part of that settlement. So we've learned along the way. Uh, it's been an incredibly important element. And I think the biggest takeaway, as we've shared the secrets that we need to keep in order to keep the public safe with outside observers throughout this whole period of time, um, some of them have been quite taken by the gravity of the threats that we're dealing with. And I think the main takeaway for us is the importance of transparency, that actually, the more you're able to communicate with the public, the safer we all are, and the happier that everybody is with the protection we're affording to civil rights and civil liberties. Um, if you don't mind, I actually also want to dig into your personal story a little bit, because it is fascinating. You're the first woman to hold this position. And just going back a generation or two, um, I understand your grandfather actually left Poland under uh, political strife in the 1930s and um, <clears throat> became a part of the Manhattan Project. I'm wondering how the influence of someone who uh, saw a different set of challenges uh, politically in his country affected the way that you approach your job now? Uh, so my grandfather was living in uh, what is now part of Ukraine in Lvov. He was a mathematician uh, and uh, did flee 
with his family, a couple members of the family. The others, unfortunately, were killed. Uh, it's a Jewish family. And so we fled the Nazis and came to the U.S. Uh, he married met and married my grandmother, who is uh, was French. And they were early uh, inhabitants of Los Alamos during the wartime years and went out to Los Alamos. My grandmother was newly pregnant with my mother at the time to work on the Manhattan Project. And he later, later stayed uh, and worked on uh, additional projects there as well in the development of the hydrogen bomb and uh, mathematical applications that are at the root of statistical modeling today called the Monte Carlo method. So he very much believed in using the power of science and intelligence in a way, in the cognitive sense, not in uh, the disciplinary sense, to affect national security and achieve public safety outcomes. Very different context, obviously, fleeing the war, coming to the middle of the desert, working on this project in secrecy. But that commitment to national security, that commitment to public safety uh, was imbued in me and via my parents growing up. And, you know, unfortunately, he passed away when I was a little girl, but I was very taken with the family history and how they chose to contribute, what it was that they had to contribute to a mission that was of vital importance at the time. 9-11 became another defining moment for me in my path to come to this field and to this department. Uh, but it was always with the background of wanting to use what I have to bring to this important fight that we have. Well, we literally only have a few seconds left, but as the first woman to hold this position, what does that mean to you? I feel extremely fortunate to be in this position. I have been helped along the way by so many men and women, and to be able to pay it forward and encourage younger women who might think, I don't know about policing, is this a career that I want to embark upon? I don't know about national security work and say, absolutely, yes, you should, and let me help you, is an incredible honor that I'm very grateful to have. All right, well, we're going to leave it there, but I'd like to thank uh, the Deputy Commissioner Weiner for joining us. Um, we definitely look forward to hopefully, perhaps not hearing from you. I'm not sure if it's good news <laughs> or bad news if we have to speak to the counterterrorism officer, but thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for joining us on Metro Focus. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. For generations, violence at home was something that families kept private. But only over the last few decades has it come to light as a social justice issue, thanks to cases like the O.J. Simpson trial and the murder of Galena Komar in New York. Domestic violence does not discriminate. One in four women and one in seven men will be a victim of domestic violence or abuse during his or her lifetime. New York was one of the many states that took the issue of domestic violence head on and can count the creation of the first felony domestic violence court back in 1996 as one of its achievements. But that's not enough for New York State Supreme Court Associate Justice John Leventhal, who presided over that court. He made it his mission to bring more attention to the issue, which he has called an epidemic. He details his experience behind the bench and what needs to be done to end domestic violence in his book. It's called My Partner, My Enemy, an unflinching view of domestic violence and new ways to protect 
victims. And Justice John Leventhal joins us now to talk about this. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. What was it that prompted you to say, all right, I, I'm going to go beyond my work in the courtrooms. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a book about all this. Why? Well, for 12 years, I, I did this important work. And I thought it was important so that this would not be the fad or the flavor of the day. Because once O.J. Simpson came, I think a lot of people thought, oh, that's domestic violence. It just came about. And I used the statistics prior to the O.J. Simpson case at the beginning of the book to show that this was of epidemic proportions prior to that. And it's such an important issue that people should realize this and we should keep keep attacking the scourge of domestic violence. I was a prosecutor back in the, the late 70s in New Jersey. It was very difficult to prosecute domestic violence cases then. Why was it so much harder then? Because society didn't view it as a societal problem. It was a private matter. The police would uh, go to a scene and they would either tell the husband to take it inside, maybe deliver him to the local bar. If a woman were, were injured and were brought to the emergency room, the doctors and the nurses would interview her and take care of her in front of perhaps the abused batterer. They wouldn't separate them. So it was no surprise that when they came into the court and the judge would say, Madam, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to drop the charges. The judge would say, did anyone force you to do that? They'd say no, and the charges would be dropped. The person's probably sitting right next to them in the courtroom right. at the time. And once it became a societal issue, it kind of empowered women and also disempowered them because it was in the hands of the prosecutor then. It wasn't in hand, hands of the woman to decide whether to proceed with the case. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the domestic violence court. Sure. What, how did that come about and what was the concept behind it? When Galena Komar was killed, um, I think that really accelerated the creation of the court. She was killed. The, the judge uh, had changed the bail. Three weeks later, the defendant uh, killed uh, Galena Komar and Governor Pataki and Mayor Giuliani called for the impeachment of the judge, which you and I know a judge cannot be impeached for a discretionary bail. But he became a magnet for criticism, and they found he had an anti-women, anti-prosecutor bias. But the fact of the matter is they needed a change. And what was the idea going to be? Because you're taking this out of the regular court system and creating, literally and figuratively, a separate venue for these cases to be heard. Why? Well, traditionally, courts are, are basically want to be efficient. In a domestic violence court, you want to ensure not only the procedural and constitutional rights of a defendant, you want to ensure the safety of the complainant, not only while the case is pending, but even after the case is over. So what I decided to do is bring back the probationers who were lucky enough to get six months in jail and five years probation for a felony, maybe a violation of an order of protection or some other lesser violent uh, uh, criminal act. And I would bring them back every three months or so for the first year, year and a half to ensure that they would succeed. So you could keep a handle on all this, we had an less, active handle on all of this. Yes, and we had less the, we had 50% less the violation rate than the general population. So. The key to that was judicial monitoring and judicial supervision. Yeah. Are, are we seeing progress being made in, in, in combating this scourge of domestic abuse? Well, let me tell you historically. We had economically women were at the bottom trend. The rule of thumb 
I don't know if you know what that was. You could hit your wife with a switch not larger than your, than your thumb. So after 1994, the Violence Against Women Act, the statistics show that with the availability of shelters, mandatory rest policy and primary uh, aggressor statutes, with the prosecution uh, of batterers and development of shelters, the intimate partner homicides and, you know, a lot of men's group criticize these specialty courts. They should know that the intimate partner homicides from 1976 to 2005 of men has gone down 75 percent. Women killing men. Of women killing men. And I think in defense of, uh, in of allegedly defense right. of being battered and of women. It has only gone down 25 percent, but it has gone down. But I think the availability of all these things, we have to do better because we have shelters now which don't accept teenage boys and women have to decide whether to stay where they are or to yeah, go, in, go into a shelter. Leave their children because the teenage boys can't come with them into the shelter. We've made more progress than any other country in this issue of domestic violence. Having said that, we have far to go. Justice Leventhal, thanks for joining us. And Jack, time. I want to thank you for having me on because this is a very important issue and close to my heart. Absolutely, our pleasure. You be well. Thank you very much. It's the haunting season of Halloween. Have you ever wondered why vampires prefer red or what you would do if you were attacked by a werewolf or even a zombie? Can you tell if that mysterious footprint in your backyard belongs to Bigfoot? And just what kind of dinosaur is Godzilla? If your child or grandchild is bombarding you with those kinds of questions, we can offer some help. A new book, Monstrous, the lore, gore, and science behind your favorite monsters provides a fun and somewhat educational dive into monsters and the macabre that will satiate even the most voracious young readers. And its author, Carlin Becha, is here with the details. Carlin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So first tell me, what was your inspiration behind this fabulous book? Well, I was the kid who was scared of everything when I was a child. So I approached this book originally examining the science of fear. Mm -hmm. Why do we fear the things that we do? And it turns out that fear is a very primal instinct. The, the mechanisms for fear haven't changed since our earliest ancestors. So I wanted to give to empower readers to let them examine which monsters are real, which monsters are not, and to give them survival plans to <laughs> survive the zombie apocalypse. What happens if a vampire attacks and you have blood loss? And all these skills are things that they could apply to real life survival examples. And of course, those do seem like the kind of things that would actually, in a weird way, help you feel calm, like mm -hmm. I know what to do if the monster from under my bed comes out to get me. Mm -hmm. But so what are some of the uh, suggestions that people or readers can get from your books? Well, one of my favorite spreads is a picture of a, were a snarling werewolf. And it says how to communicate with a werewolf so you don't get eaten. And all the tips in it are actually the same body language that dogs use. And there are, there are a lot yes. of kids that are scared of dogs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, a dog will uh, raise its tail and it will start wagging like that. That's one of the, and that, that's a sign of aggression. That means if it's about to attack, mm -hmm. a dog will pin its ears forward. It's about to lunge. And so it's a sort of a tongue-in-cheek way to say, okay, this is if a werewolf is about to attack, attack, it will do these things. But guess what, kids? If a dog does that, you also better stand back. Aha, uh -huh, of course. Now, does this mean, though, that if a werewolf were to come upon me and I perhaps had bacon in my pocket, I can <laughs> get a 
away. And make the werewolf very, very happy. Bacon is always good for werewolves. Just don't have wolfsbane on you. Uh, of course. And again, these are the kind of... Uh, Helpful Halloween details yep. that I think could help anyone with a vivid imagination, not just kids. Yes, I hope so. And the book was also written intentionally so that it, this isn't just a child's read. Like, this is something that a child at heart could also appreciate and have on their bookshelf. That's my hope. I mean, there's some complex subjects in here. In the King Kong chapter, I talk about the square cube law and what, why that makes King Kong impossible. So that's an advanced subject. And, you know, most kids, they don't really gravitate towards math as much <laughs> as, say, monsters. But my hope is that I can make math and science so ridiculously fun that kids will learn these things and they don't even know it. They're just tricked by it. <laughs> and again, and of course, adults as well. Um, how much back research did you have to do about these monsters and their origin stories to be able to put some of these pieces together? It was so much research. It was five years of research. And I also had to use a lot of expert readers because some of the subjects are, are a bit over my head. Uh, the zombie chapter talks about neuroscience, what's going on in the zombie brain. Oh. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm just a writer. So I had to <laughs> consult with those people. There's a lot of a medical background. So I had to consult with people in medical fields to make sure I was getting it right. What exactly happens if an artery is, is pierced? I need to know those details. I spoke to coroners because there's a, a chapter on decomposition versus vampires, how to tell the difference. Mm. So there was a lot of expert readers who helped me with this book. So, of course, the all-important difference between the living dead and the undead. Yes, it's very <laughs> important. You need to know, kids, if you see this reddish-brown fluid at the corners of the mouth, that could be purge fluid, not a vampire feeding. Oh. So that person is actually dead. You don't need to worry. Oh, well, see, there you go. There you These go. are the helpful tips that they help you get through know. Halloween. And it's great dinner table conversation, too. Of course. But again, um, I'm wondering who, even though, as I was just saying, you know, children of all ages could appreciate this, but really, who's your target audience here? Because this really feels like something that the um, early tween, perhaps seven, eight, nine, ten year old, would just eat up. Mm hmm. Well, it, there's a saying that, that children's book authors write the books that they wish they had as children. And what I mean by that is I was a child that I didn't really gravitate towards science. Mm -hmm. So my ideal reader is that reader who says, oh, I'm not, I don't want to learn about science. I don't want to learn about the square cube law. I certainly don't want to learn about neuroscience and whether Bigfoot, the anthropological possibilities of Bigfoot. So my objective is to, for that reader to make these subjects so interesting that they'll learn and they're not even realizing that they're learning because everyone loves monsters. Of course. <laughs> um, and we, I think we all prefer the ones that are of lore as yes. opposed to uh, in real life. Um, I'm wondering if there's any one story from either researching this book or your own uh, history with monsters that stays with you the most, that's your favorite. Yeah, so that's a good question. The Godzilla chapter was really interesting to me because I didn't know the backstory of Godzilla. I didn't know it came out of this very real tragedy of the atomic bombs being dropped on Bikini Atoll. I wanted that, that chapter last because it says to me, men have the amazing ability to destruct. Like We are beasts inside us. We have the ability to be monsters. So I thought it was an apropos and maybe a little bit philosophical way to end and say, like, we're, this is all fun and games, but, you know, 
nuclear fallouts that, that could actually happen. This is such a great book. It is yeah. a, definitely a good friendly user's guide for the upcoming Halloween <laughs> season. For anyone who has any questions about, of course, monsters and how to survive attacks from them. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me.